All those who are holding tickets outside will get in as fast as they can. I'm speaking not to you, ladies and gentlemen. I'm speaking to the crowd on the outside who seem to be standing rather reluctant to come in, and we're going to start this very soon. The relationship between psychoanalysis and cinema is far more intertwined than many other mediums, as cinema can be specifically constructed to portray the human psyche. The sights, sounds, and their intertwined meaning allow cinema to reveal the inner mind in our psyche, our faults, our love, our addiction, our betrayal, our dreams, our lies, our passion. So I didn't think there was any better way to start this episode of Worthy, episode 18, about the lost weekend than kind of jumping in and talking about psychology in film. So with such a, such a strong portrayal of a character's psyche, I wanted to first kind of ask you, Ben, what is the first time that you remember seeing you know, a human psyche or someone's kind of mental state shown in film? And what do you think about like the original kind of con- conception of that and how that was brought into the film as a medium or as an art medium? And what is like, the first film that you personally remember seeing that was like that? Man, you're teeing me up for the obvious answer <laughs> to any of questions about film for me, and that's Lord of the Rings. Uh, you know, when I first saw uh, Smeagol slash Gollum uh, do probably the most iconic scene for that character in the two towers where it's just a back and forth between himself. You know, that's the first time that I remember psychology really being a part of film. And I was at a pretty young age and, and you know, to realize like this person, this hobbit, he's, he's a hobbit, uh, you know, went through such a, uh, you know, a mental struggle and that now has a split personality like that, that resonated for me. Uh, another one of my favorite films, Black Swan. That was a huge psychological uh, mind fuck. Even though that movie is not like a crazy, you know, thriller, psycho- like psychological thing, it still has enough in there that it's why that film is so as popular as it is. It's why it's that it's as thrilling. It's why Natalie Portman does so well in that performance. And I've always loved, you know, when they're deep diving into, psycho- into psychology and film and talking about the in the the fringe life. There are these aspects of life that can really, you know, it really puts someone through the, a test, you know, and really breaks them down. And getting through that, the end result is what ultimately makes them them, you know. So the, those mental struggles to see on film, I think, is actually a really popular story and, and narrative because so many people are dealing with their own struggles. They see it on film. They can relate to it. Even though film can really dramatize it, it's still something the audience can connect to. Sure. Yeah, I think those are great points. And I think that when we speak about it, you have to kind of break it in two parts where it's on one side, it's a film can show you that perspective, right? It can show you a struggle and addiction, you know, mental health issues, and it can like physically just show that story. But then film can also like physically take you into the perspective of a character to try to use the filmic elements, you know, editing, cinematography and the sound to kind of mix it all together to make a human psyche and kind of like show that through the medium. So I think there's two different aspects. And I think I didn't really think about Lord of the Rings until you really mentioned that, but with him being, I guess I'll call it bipolar. I don't know if like how they really kind of define it in the book. It's a split personality. It is like a split personality. Yeah. Yeah, That's what I meant. Not bipolar, but a split personality. And they use like the, I remember it's been a while since I've seen the film. So you'll, you'll remember, but they kind of like show different angles from his different point of view, right? Like when he speaks from one of the character or the other, it's shot differently, right? Yeah. It, and the scene that I'm talking about in the two towers where he's just doing his own, it, 
you know, it's outer monologue. It's not even an inner monologue. They always like, you know, the way they would frame it for one shot is the Smeagol character. And the way they frame it for the other one, the shot reverse shot is for Gollum, uh, for other things they do for that animation. Um, I'm pretty sure it's for Smeagol. His pupils are huge. And then when yeah. it's Gollum, his pupils really, you know, shrink. And, uh, so like that, the, the stuff they do with that, with that character specifically to, uh, convey, you know, the psyche and the psychological things that are going on. Yeah, definitely. And uh, that's a great example of kind of like using film to kind of show that difference between the two. Even though he's not really the central character, he's still really integral to the to the overall story. And when I first kind of was thinking about this and thinking about how much we've seen, I mean, we haven't seen too much German expressionism. Obviously, it's the Oscars, mainly kind of Hollywood and American film centered. But when I think about, you know, human psyche, I always think of like horror or psychological thrillers and kind of rewinding back into like film history. I think of like German expressionism because of how one, how vibrant either the sets were, the like the color that they would add onto black and white, um, the just crazy scores that we would hear kind of over top of them, all trying to portray either like horror you know, I'm thinking of like Nosferatu, like earlier films and like Metro, Metro, was it Metropolis? Metropolis. Metropolis. Thank you. Where they would kind of use these filmic elements to kind of portray a society or portray someone's kind of human emotions through the visuals and through the use of the added music. So that's kind of where I thought about it first originally, like that first kind of moment uh, or genre really in film that's trying to like show and depict a human's brain and how, how we think and how we operate as humans. So that was, that was kind of interesting. I couldn't really think of a better film because I haven't seen that much German expressionism. Well, Although, you, you did. We watched uh, The Cabinet of Dr. Calgary. Yes, in, yes, that is a perfect film, film. That was like yeah. one of the first films we watched it. So. Yeah, that was probably one of the first we watched in all of school. And that's a perfect example. Thank you. Because it's, I'm trying to remember the plot a little bit, but it's like kind of like a mad scientist kind of thing where like he's chasing after this guy. He's kind of like haunting him like almost. a killer on the loose type Yeah, of thing. similar yeah. to kind of like Nosferatu and uh, in that kind of like horror vein where it does. It's, it's crazy. The sets are built in these weird like angular kind of like sharp designs and it's kind of off-putting and it kind of shows the weird like psychosis that someone's like yeah. experiencing. And we also saw that in, uh, in Sunrise in the first episode. Yeah, of worthy is that we you know there's a lot of it's all German expressionism and the uh, the man the character is just the man uh, he goes to that whole thing where he's like debating do I kill my wife do I not kill her you know and and that's the whole beginning but then he the rest of the movie isn't really about that but the beginning of the of the film is about that so I think that film is a great example though because there's almost like fantasy sequences we don't have to go too deep in it but there's fantasy sequences that kind of show you what it's like to be in love or like to kind of like be so uh, connected with each other that you're kind of like lost in what's actually happening in reality. Yeah. So that's like really interesting to think about. And I don't think we've really seen much like that, like an experimental film that kind of pushes the medium that much in Oscar winners. And I wanted to ask a couple more questions, but before we move on to the lost weekend, which deals so much in the human psyche and, and portraying that in film with addiction. But I wanted to ask whether Ben, do you think that like showing a human perspective in film uh, whether that's even even necessary to be in a film, do human experience or the human struggle or uh, human aspects do that does that need to be in a film and and, and that, is that kind of what leads to something being Oscar worthy? Is that just an aspect to it? Yeah, I think that it's. I wouldn't say it's necessary, but it's a very popular genre and it's actually stuck pretty true and through throughout Oscar history. 
not only just best picture winners, but just many films that get nominated. So is it, you know, do, do I demand that? No, but I like them. I, I like these films. It, and I think that when you do see someone struggle on film, when you do see an addiction uh, or someone's depression, it's so powerful, especially because of how film can be used. Like the medium of it of itself can be used to portray that. It is extremely powerful. It's probably one of the best ways to do it. You know, people use paintings to, you know, convey that. But I, I just feel that film is the best medium because you can, there's so many different techniques to use with it. Um, a movie actually I was thinking about when, when, when I saw this question brought up was, uh, did you see Shiva baby? It's like an, or Shiva no. baby, I no, should no, say. Yeah. Uh, so that one uses a, a ton of like, not like fisheye lenses, but pretty wide angle lenses, but really up close to get that claustrophobic effect. And that's sort of what the character is going through. And so that's like a very minimal, like mental struggle, but then there are so many other ways that directors and, and, and cinematographers do use like just camera techniques to convey that, you know? No, certain, certainly. I, th- I think uh, that's definitely been a film that's been on my list, but to think about films that either kind of portray mental health or addiction. I know we spoke about uh, a, b- a bunch of range of films like one flew over the cuckoo's nest and who's afraid of Virginia Woolf, a star is born, which we've seen, um, which we haven't seen yet, but is coming. In, there have been four iterations. Yeah. Of <laughs> yeah. I was going to say like kind of evolving into the Oscars. Cause that's definitely been around the yeah. Oscars for a lot. It has. And one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Uh, I said this to you off the mic, but I, I do think that's one of the best films to portray mental health and, and talk about, struggle and in so many different ways and we'll get to that when we do get to talk about one flew over the cougar's nest but that one i think is one of the best examples of talking about struggle definitely and i think i couldn't go on without mentioning like darren aronofsky's work because we spoke a little bit about it but you know he just focuses on characters that are going through kind of like an addiction and they're not always just you know addicted to drugs some of them are addicted to a number of different things. It's a lot about like a obsessive personality, whether it's the wrestler or black swan, you know, they're, they're super focused on these characters and he uses like the film medium to show how these characters see the world and, and what this like obsessive behavior does and how it kind of destroys them or kind of what they see from their point of view is what makes them who they are. So I want to just talk about a little bit of that and then you could kind of jump into further of like the how a film can portray that inner psyche and I think of films like uh, Enter the Void or most recently Rocket Man, uh, A Beautiful Mind or like Citizen Kane which is you know something that we spoke about previously that really uses film and uses you know, these wide shots and, and uses memories and kind of depicts that through film and editing in a way that kind of it paints a portrait of who Citizen Kane is. And it's not just, you know, showing a story with characters talking, it's using the actual medium to go further and beyond and, and kind of get you in that mind. So I wanted to break off and jump into the psyche and, and talk a little bit about that before we jump into the lost weekend. And to ask the age old question, is the lost weekend worthy of the best picture award of 1945? The Lost Weekend, the desperate life of a chronic alcoholic is followed through a weekend drinking bout. On Thursday, alcoholic New York writer Don Burnham is packing for a weekend vacation with his brother Wick. 
When Don's girlfriend Helen drops by with two tickets for a concert that day, Don suggests that Wick attend with Helen. Knowing they had disposed of all the liquor Don had hidden in the apartment and thinking he has no more money for more, they go to the concert. After finding $10 that Wick left for the cleaning lady, Don heads for Nat's bar, going to a liquor store to purchase two bottles of rye on the way. Don intends to be back home in time to meet Wick and catch their train, but he loses track of time due to his drinking. When he arrives home, he sees Wick leaving and Helen saying she will stay and wait for Don. Don sneaks back into the flat where he hides one of his bottles of liquor and drinks the other one. On Friday, back at Nat's bar, Nat criticizes Don for treating Helen so badly. Don tells Nat that he intends to write a novel about his battle with alcoholism called The Bottle. He recalls how he first met Ellen at an opera house, where the cloakroom mixed up their coats. He and Helen struck up a romance, and he remained sober during that time. When he goes to meet her parents, he overhears them talking about him being unemployed, wondering if he's good enough for their daughter. He loses his nerve and sneaks off. She goes to his flat where Wick tries to cover for him, but Don confesses that he has two people, Don the writer, whose fear of failure causes him to drink, and Don the drunk, who always has to be bailed out by Wick. Helen devotes herself to helping him. After telling Nat the story behind the proposed novel, Don heads back home to begin writing it. However, his alcohol cravings get the better of him, and he begins a desperate search for the other bottle from the previous night, which he knows he has hidden away somewhere. After failing to find it, he visits another bar, where he is thrown out after trying to steal from a woman's purse because he didn't have enough to pay the bill. Back in his flat, he finds the bottle he had hidden and drinks himself into a stupor. On Saturday, Don is broke and tries to pawn his typewriter so he can buy more alcohol, but the pawn shops are closed for Yom Kippur. Desperate for money, he visits Gloria, a woman who has a crush on him. She gives him some money, but he falls down her stairs and is knocked unconscious. On Sunday, Don wakes up in an alcoholics ward where nurse Bim Nolan mocks him and other guests at Hangover Plaza. Bim offers to help cure his delirium tremens, but Don refuses help and escapes while the staff are occupied with a raving, violent patient. On Monday, Don steals a bottle of whiskey from a store and spends the day drinking. Suffering from delirium tremens, he hallucinates a nightmarish scene in which a bat flies into his window and kills a mouse, spilling its blood. Helen then returns, finding Don collapsed in a delirious state. She stays overnight on his couch. On Tuesday morning, Don slips out and pawns Helen's coat, the one that had brought them together. She trails him to the pawn shop and learns from the pawnbroker that he had traded the coat for a gun, for which he has bullets at home. She races to Don's apartment and interrupts him just before he's about to shoot himself. As she pleads with him, Nat arrives to return Don's typewriter. After Nat leaves, Helen convinces him that Don the writer and Don the drunk are the same person. He commits to writing his novel, The Bottle, dedicated to her, which will recount the events of the weekend. He drops a cigarette into a glass of whiskey to make it undrinkable as evidence of his resolve. The Lost Weekend is directed by Billy Wilder. Written by Charles Brackett and Billy Wilder based on the novel by Charles R. Jackson. Produced by Charles Brackett. Music by Miklos Rosa. Cinematography by John F. Seitz. Art direction by Hans Dreher and A. Earl Hedrick. Costume design by Edith Head. The Lost Weekend starred Ray Millen as Don Burnham. Jane Wyman as Helen St. James. Philip Terry as Wick Burnham. Howard De Silva as Nat. Doris Dalling as Gloria. Frank Phelan as Bim Nolan. So we're starting out the last weekend. And actually, I think the most fascinating aspect of this conversation is going to be that 
John during film school had to during one of his classes he directed scenes from it that that he had to just do on his own but he never actually saw the film but he just read the script that it was script just given to him the assignment was film based on this very good script and go ahead and see what you can do so I I think the best place to start this whole conversation is to ask you about that experience and then seeing the film and, and if there are any differences, if you thought you did a better job than Billy Wilder or how Billy Wilder did better than you, you know, either way. Yeah, it was a really interesting experience and it was one of my kind of favorite moments. It was a directing class that I took in, in film school that it was probably junior year and this was a really big challenge. It was probably like the most nervous and nerve wracking experience that I had to do because it was really we were put on the line. So we had to pick three scenes and we got a, a full list of films that we got to pick. We weren't supposed to watch any of them. I'm, I'm sure some people cheated and, and actually watched some of the films. But the whole point was to take a script that you know is, is really well regarded. It kind of stands out and it's going to hold up on its own. And then seeing what you can do and how you can kind of direct to make these scenes. And the way it was broken down is that we had to do three scenes. And each scene would kind of last almost the whole semester, right? We would kind of do all these through three throughout the year. And the first scene would kind of be done in front of the class where you would kind of involve the class and every person would have to kind of be a role and you would have to, as the director, assign everyone in the class, talk to your actors, kind of walk through the scene, have some props that we had in the, in the class and, and then go on and direct that scene. And then scene two, we had to do a, a one take, a long take, and we got to pick any of the scenes that we wanted in the film for each of these. And then by scene three, we had to involve editing and kind of take a scene and fully edit it all together. So... It was a great experience. I think it like taught me some of the most out of any of the classes that I, that I really took. And I think if anyone's listening that's really inspired and wants to kind of teach themselves or really kind of challenge themselves, I think you could do this with you take a film that you love a lot and, and take that script. If if you haven't seen it, that's better because you can't really kind of use the inspiration from what you've seen and kind of bringing that into what you're going to then make. But yeah, I think it's a great idea to kind of continue on. And I thought about even doing it again, but I highly recommend it. And it's really interesting for The Lost Weekend because this is the first film now for Worthy where I haven't seen it, but I have read the script, which is really weird, right? So I knew the whole story. I knew everything about it, even though it's kind of four or five years ago at this point. But it was really interesting to see like these scenes actually come to life and how they were portrayed. And this film based in the 40s, it has a lot of slang, I think even more so than a lot of the films that we've seen so far. It feels very much of the time, but also beyond the time, right? Like anyone can watch this and like understand that struggle and understand it. So I think that was one of the main reasons why I picked this film, because it was something that's earnest i think truthful and something that anyone can really relate to and i think translates beyond just the 40s so i originally i have to mention this because i originally in the class picked uh cronenberg's crash which i still haven't seen but i read the script and i (laughs) immediately went to my film professor and was just like i can't do this movie it involves way too much sex with body injuries it's disturbing i don't want to do this movie and she completely understood and that's how I ended up on the lost weekend. So <laughs> yeah, Ben, thanks for shouting that out. Cause yeah, I'll kind of go through it. If there's a scene that uh, I got to direct, so I'll kind of break it down. Obviously I didn't make better scenes than Billy Wilder did. <laughs> well, but uh, I have some interesting takes based on like my changes that I made based yeah. on the film. Yeah. And I've, I've heard you talk about them a few, a few of those, but we'll get to them. But in terms of scenes, let's actually start with the whole opening 
of the film because I think that that gives one it, it's it's very fast paced, drops you right into the story, and it really does everything you would want as an audience or as I guess a film critic because you don't you, you get so much backstory and you get it so succinctly and so quickly that you are ready to go with the story. You're ready to go. You're ready to see what happens next. And that's within the first five minutes of the film, which is really good. That that speaks a lot to the script itself and the filmmakers as well. So the cool, so it opens up this really cool shot of New York city and uh, it, it's like a slow pan across the city, across the skyline. And then it starts to zoom into this building and this window. And it's odd at first. Cause you see something kind of hanging out the window and as you get closer, you realize that it's a bottle of whiskey hanging at the end of a rope out the window. So there's probably a lot that can just be said about that. And, and Don's one, his suicide attempt, you know, even though he tries to shoot himself, you can see the hanging as another thing, you know, that it's also didn't even think about that. Yeah. You, you, said that. you think of it like that. You can think of it as like his, you know, he says like his mind was just hanging outside that window. So he's like on the edge of just like insanity because Literally, his mind is hanging by a thread almost. And uh, I thought that was a really cool imagery and a really cool way to enter into the story and opens up this very wacky uh, lost weekend, as one would call it. And uh, yeah, so I, I think that it gives great backstory to Don and you can already Ray Malin's M- Malin, Milan. I don't know. I think we're going to go with Malin <laughs> this time around. Uh, and it really his. He's such an, a nervous wreck, this character. And without even saying that he's an alcoholic, you can tell that he's tweaking, that there's something going on that's like really making him anxious, that's really driving him, that's really, you know, we, we got to go, we got to go, I got to get them out of here, I got to get that bottle in me. And uh, it, it's a very good opening performance. But what were your initial reactions of, uh, of this opening scene? I think it's honestly one of the best openings that we've seen yet because it not only just drops us right into what's going on, it, it doesn't... It doesn't baby us. It doesn't have to like sit us down and be like, oh, this character is doing this. Like, let me give you a voiceover and tell you about Don and his struggle with drinking. And like, it just knows. I think Billy Wilder just knows that the audience is smarter than that. And I remember reading about some of the trivia and I remember seeing that when this first opened and a lot of people wanted to go see it, there were people just laughing at this opening shot where you like see the bottle hanging out. And when, you know, his brother finds it and he's like revealing to Don, like, what are you doing? Cause it is goofy in a way where you're like, this is ridiculous. Like he really like is going to just hang this bottle out here, but you don't understand the severity of it when it first starts. And, there are moments in this film where I don't know if it's me personally, but I, I find them kind of funny and, and I laugh at moments of this film, but it kind of twists and it becomes even more sad where it's like you're laughing because it's like so goofy that he's gotten to this point and then it kind of twists and then you're like, oh, this is like even worse than I was even expecting, right? And I think it's just, it's a beautiful ending or beginning when you think about the ending actually and how it kind of all loops around and it begins the same way the film kind of ends and we'll definitely get to that. I don't want to spoil the great ending, but yeah, I honestly think it's one of the best beginnings that we've seen because it just introduces our three main characters. You don't have Nat there, but our three main characters that are kind of around the center of the conflict. It tells us what our probably main conflict is going to be. It's going to be Don dealing with his addiction and kind of uh, his kind of friends and family trying to help him and console him with that. But you can already tell that from the very opening that, you know, his brother is, is revealing that he's found this bottle and it's hanging out of the window that 
it's worse than we think and that this film is really going to challenge us and i think it's the perfect beginning to just bring us on this journey and it really is a journey you can tell by the way the camera kind of swings into the apartment that we're starting this journey right at this moment yeah and it's it's i like that you brought up that that this is it could be interpreted as a comedic thing this opening yeah and i didn't have that uh perspective on it i don't know why but maybe just from the age that i'm at and when i first watched it but then upon reading and researching about the film this movie didn't test well this movie was laughed at by a lot of test audiences and paramount was kind of just like i don't know if we should really release this they didn't think it was going to be the message was really being you know shown but then they upon you know adding the score to the film really heightened it and then there was some you know there's some reworkings of it but then the film became what it was and it became a much more psychological thriller drama type film and so yeah so it could be interpreted as funny and and i'm sure it was for that time but it also speaks to where society was at the time where they weren't openly talking about alcoholism where they weren't talking about addiction and and showing a character like don who is so who goes through so much and and it's every single i'm not gonna say stereotype but it's every single thing you would expect out of a character on screen who's dealing with an addiction and and the other fascinating thing about that is that Raymond Lynn wasn't really a drinker. You know, he talks about how he didn't really drink, but he had to kind of, you know, figure out a way to get into the psyche of this character. And I think it, it, he it's phenomenal with it because he really does do everything you would expect out of a performance about an addict. And it, it, it excels greatly. And it's what helps to drive the film even more, you know. So, I Definitely. again, yeah. So the scene opening scene is great. You get a really good insight into the relationship between Don and his brother and Don and Helen, his girlfriend. And then he gets the money after he gets them out of the apartment and the fun for the weekend really begins. <laughs> it definitely does. I, I wanted to kind of backtrack and talk a little bit about that because I think some of the humor comes from Ray playing Don and playing Don in such a happy kind of, he has, he just doesn't care about like anything really. Even the people that he loves in his life, he, he'll literally say anything to get by, to get to that next sip, to get to that next drink of alcohol. So he's so charming and he goes on these like rants and he will quote Shakespeare and he's so lovable that you're like, he doesn't have a problem. Like at first you're like, he doesn't have a problem. Like that they're just exaggerating. You know, you just, you kind of refuse to believe it because he seems like such a fun, happy guy. Right. And then it's like, as the weekend begins, like you're saying, we see that twist. So I could kind of see that being kind of hard to accept at first. I think you could look at this beginning and the reveal of taking the alcohol. It could play almost as like a, a gag in that comedy, right? Like yeah. if you're watching another film, like three stooges or something like it would be a, a goofy joke where he's like hiding his liquor. So like his brothers don't get it, you know, but when this, I think it probably just took people by surprise where they just weren't expecting it. Yeah. You can feel the desperation in his character and, and talking about his charm. One of the first notes I wrote down was that I feel like Ray looks like James Stewart a little bit. Do you, do you see that a little bit? Like, I feel like, I'm not saying that, that they are the same exact person. They look exactly the same. I feel like there's some of those features that are there, that there's that kind of happy-go-lucky presence. This like, And at the time, James Stewart was this huge star. So to kind of see another leading man who has some of those same features that all of a sudden you're like, okay, I, I, this guy seems familiar. And then all of a sudden there's a dark side to him. I think is really, it puts you off guard and, and you're kind of, and that's what makes it a fun film is because you don't know what's going to happen next. You don't know where Don's going to be going next. 
and it, it really keeps you in involved in the film and the storyline because you're you don't know what to anticipate you don't know where it's going to go next type of thing definitely i think ray Maland or Maland, wherever you want to pronounce yeah. his name he he's like the perfect everyday american man i think he he had like fits that part he looks like jimmy stewart and maybe that's kind of in play with why i feel like he looks like the classic iconic man is because of Jimmy Stewart being in such iconic classic films that we kind of think about that as, as this early golden age Hollywood actor, but he is, he's got that darkness under him. And I don't know if it's just because we obviously know he's an alcoholic or we can talk about his diet, which, you know, (laughs) consisted of barely anything like dry toast, coffee and grape juice and boiled eggs where he lost a bunch of weight. And he kind of looks just like hollow almost in a way where there's definitely something missing from his actual presence, his physical presence. So he he really carries the film. You know, we know that this is just by the title, a lost weekend, but we don't really realize until the first couple scenes that this film is extremely just about Don. We're going to follow his journey and try to see if we can kind of like stay along with him. So jumping into like the next scene, we have, Don kind of convincing his girlfriend and his brother to leave, right? So they go off to the show, and he says he's going to meet them back, and he's going to meet them there later. And he finds $10 in a sugar bowl in his house that, you know, his family is trying to keep money away from him so he can't buy any booze. But what I found really interesting about this, looking into uh, the metrics of how much currency has changed over the year, and so he finds $10, right, in this film. came out in 1944, for the 1945 Academy Awards, but that ten dollars today translated in 2021 would be 155 dollars. Insane! It's right? a lot of alcohol. Yeah, it. Well, it's interesting because I see that you mentioned like how much would it be for one whiskey shot then, and yeah. then you have to think about like him buying the two bottles of liquor, right? And that's got to be like a good amount of money, right? I mean, saying if we're like relating it to now, it's at least twenty five to fifty dollars, depending on like what liquor you're well, buying. Well, he says that he does. I don't want the yeah, he wants the cheapest, stuff, yeah, the cheapest stuff. <laughs> yeah, he's again, he has such funny lines throughout this film. So I thought that was just interesting to kind of equate and relate it to today, and just see how much money ten dollars actually is compared to you know the war era that we're in now. So from that point, we know what he's looking for right he has money and we know what's next is he's going to get drinks right he's got to get more he's got to continue his his journey so at this point how, how do you really see don ben are you are you concerned at this point or are you just still kind of following to see what he does next because we don't really see how bad his addiction is yet right at this point we know he's like yeah. scavenging for money and we know he really wants it but I don't think it's until we meet Nat and we get to their relationship that you kind of really see how bad it is. Yeah, I, you know, you don't really know. And I think I'm trying to think of like the back to when I first watched this film, because now I've seen it a few times and there's been a lot of separation between when I first saw it. And when I first saw it, I don't think I was as concerned because I was like, OK, like how far are they really going to go with this alcoholism? You know, in 1945, like I didn't really know how far it does go. And they go pretty far with how it's depicted and, and how it really affects Don. And he, he becomes a really just despicable person when he gets to Nat's bar, you know, and he's, you know, way he's demanding for drinks, the way that he's trying to play it off of like, Oh, I'm, I'm this cool guy, you know, likes to just have like a few drinks and how I'm going to sneak the drinks with me on the weekend with my brother. And it, you know, he's, he's trying to be like the cool Humphrey Bogart, but really he's just this like 
crazy guy who you would find on the streets of New York who, you know, is in their own drunken stupor type of thing. And it's, it's, so it's a little unsettling with how he's able to get through it. And also just, you can just tell, you know, from that first scene when he gets in Nat's bar, you can just tell that like, there's so many fucking stories with this guy and how drunk he was and how many times he probably messed up and, and what kind of situations he probably got himself in just because he thinks that he knows better just because he thinks that he's a smooth talking guy who's just like, I'm just going to hold my drink and just going to take these shots at this bar and be chill for a little bit. And it's not chill at all. It's, it's, it's awful. It's disturbing. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> it really is. And his relationship with Nat, who's the bartender at his local bar is you can tell Nat's known him for a long time and that he's just, he's just there and you could kind of look at Nat's character and be like, well, he's just, he's not helping this person who's clearly has problems, right? He clearly has an addiction and that brings up the morality of someone who's providing that service of, of drinking, being a bartender is like, where, where is that? You know, a lot of bartenders, especially like this, if you're going to these bars over and over, you kind of become close, you become friends. So what is that relationship where he doesn't cut him off? He's kind of telling him like, you shouldn't do it. Like you should stop, but he doesn't stop himself now. Right. Yeah. He, and it's funny cause he says like, you should stop drinking as he's pouring him a drink. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that I think it can be chalked up to the well addiction and alcoholism wasn't really a, a a norm. It wasn't really like that, you know, accepted in society and in the sense that it's just not it wasn't really talked about that you no one really like everyone drank, so everyone just assumed that everyone was a drunk. But that's the thing is that Don got to that point where all of a sudden the bartender was probably the first person outside of his immediate family and relationships. I was like, hmm, I don't think this guy should really be drinking. Which says a lot, and 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 that's why Nat's character is good because he because he does challenge Don, he does enable Don in many ways, but he also start he becomes that voice of reason at the beginning of the film. He's like, you should really stop. Like you are, you you clearly have something good in your life, you know, because he mentions Helen, and he's like, you you really have something good in your life, and and you're gonna fuck this up if you keep on drinking. But I'm still gonna pour you that drink, and it, it's just it's a very odd relationship, but it works for those scenes and it's really great and then when you end up getting are these like really great monologues from from don and he really dives deep into into one of them and, and what he can do when when he's drinking and uh so i really like this line so he, he says it shrinks my liver pickles my kidneys what does it do to my mind it tosses the sandbags overboard so the balloon can soar suddenly i'm over the ordinary i'm confident supremely confident and he then gives it like a bunch of other references to artists. And he gives his other line that I thought was good. And he, and he says, I'm John Barrymore before the movies got him by the throat. <laughs> and, and it's true because John Barrymore was this prolific stage and, and theater actor. And then when he became a Hollywood star, it, he didn't, he wasn't as successful, even though we, we've talked about him a lot uh, in, in the podcast episodes. But yeah, John Barrymore's career kind of went down, but it's just the whole point that Don's like, I'm, a different person, a more creative, a more open because of drinking. And that's also something we see in so many Hollywood actors, writers and directors where they have these addictions and these vices and they're like, but it makes me more creative. It makes me a better, you know, filmmaker. And it, it just teeters on that edge where this film is like, it's a social commentary on the filmmaking process. And it's, and it's also a commentary on alcoholism and so, yeah, so it can be comedic in many ways because you're like, oh, it's kind of funny that like, oh, he's pointing out all these things. But then you think about it, you're like, oh, but he's kind of talking about, you know, as a filmmaker, me. 
Yeah, he reminds me very much so of of, of comedian almost the way he can kind of bounce around and he seems like his memory is still so much intact and he remembers Shakespeare and he can go on about these stories that he's going to write. But it's it just kind of shows how sad it is because he knows how bad it is. He knows that it's hurting his body, but he's so mentally twisted to the point that he thinks he needs it. You know, he's so dependent on it that he sees this as the reason to not just his the only reason why he's creative and his success, but he links it together basically. Like with this combination of liquor and my mental state, I become this better person. This person that doesn't have anything to weigh him down, like he says, throwing the sandbags off of the boat and or off of the I guess air balloon and flying. Yeah, and the balloon I would assume, sword. yeah. Yeah. And it just shows how great the screenplay is too. It just how well and witty the dialogue is and how sharp it is. It it felt so natural and it was one of the reasons why I picked the film because I read it and I'm like, I can see where so much of this kind of like slang comes from of the time and that's really dated, but at the same time it's it's just he feels so alive and he feels like such yeah. a like lived character. It's very natural and it's very quick and what makes it even better is that like it's so good acting and, and such good writing that you don't even realize how good the actual cinematography and, and filming and, and the way they blocked everything is. Uh, so th- they, most of that speech is mostly just one shot. There's like a cut to Nat kind of like sitting by the bar, looking at him coolly. There are shots of that. You can see from sort of from behind Donna at an angle, but then you see Nat looking at the bar mirror and you can see Nat's face and he's giving judgment to Don so it's really well shot and it ends on what um, what Don calls his vicious circles, which is just the condensation circles on a bar from the glass uh, from from the from the whiskey glass. And the the idea of a circle, I think, keeps on repeating itself throughout this film. Definitely. That the addiction is a cyclical thing. Don's whole Don's whole being is cyclical. Like he tries to stop. Then he goes back. He tries and he goes back. And it's just, and it's just like. It's something that an addict can go through it again. So these vicious circles just keeps on popping up. And I think it's a great imagery and a great idea that it's emphasized throughout the film. Yeah, it's a, it's amazing. I really love that aspect. I think it really ties the film all together. And I think I'll definitely reach back and touch more on it. But I wanted to at least read the actual quote from Don where, you know, the bartender announced he's about to like wipe down the bar and the wooden bar in front of him because there's this perfect circle. And Don says, don't wipe it away, Nat. Let me let let me have my little vicious circle. You know the circle is the perfect geometric figure. No end, no beginning. So you know even such a small thing as it's like sacred drinking to him, right? It's yeah. like a ritual. It's it's therapeutic, but it's also kind of his religion in a way, where you really really see how bad it is. And we I think we skipped over the very beginning of the scene where he first gives him the shot and just how eager Don is to drink he's yeah. just like he's like almost shaking because he's just like waiting to take it but he doesn't want to seem too obvious that he like needs this drink yeah 100% and he's yeah you can just tell he's you know jumping him down for joy just like how Gollum jumped him down for joy for the ring it, it's that kind of addictive personality it's that kind of 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 depth that that Milan brings to the character that yeah, he's gonna portray the guy like just like oh my god, I can't wait to get that drink, I can't wait to get that drink, and he gets it, and he's just so happy, he's thrilled, and and then it with each successive drink, because the next drink isn't as always good as the first drink, and you can kind of tell that that starts to happen to him where he like isn't as pleased with the alcohol, but he's so like oh my god, I'm such a great person when I'm when I'm drinking, when I'm drunk, 
that he doesn't realize how much of an ass that he has become. And so those vicious circles really do become vicious because they, they do start to bite him in the ass. And what's also fascinating about this whole drinking and, and seeing Don so happy is this wasn't a normal thing to be showing on screen. You know, it was pretty hotly contested. And the index said uh, from AFI's website about the last weekend, it said a letter from Allied Liquor Industries, which is a public relations organization for the liquor industry, included in the MPAA PCA files revealed that the liquor industry's fear that with the release of the Lost Weekend, quote, the professional prohibitionists will not have the slightest hesitancy in pointing to the leading character as typical of anyone who sips a mild and occasional cocktail. The letter continued that the industry hoped Paramount would use a forceful and plainly stated preamble to the film, which will eliminate all our fears. A contemporary news item noted that Whiskey Interest protested the filming on the grounds that any depiction of a five-day binge would prejudice audiences against their product. At the same time, prohibition groups protested on the grounds that it would incite drinking. I don't, when I, after I watched this movie, I did not want to touch a thing of alcohol, <laughs> you know? Well, like, well, to, when you hear that, like, what, what does that say to you? Does it just scream that, like, they, uh, the liquor industry was just like, maybe we should, like, they, maybe, it feels like almost they're like, no, we shouldn't have this film, but really we should, because they think that it's like reverse kind Psychology of marketing. Yeah. In a way. I think it, honestly, I think this shows more than anything just how well the film portrays addiction and how well it kind of shows you how bad it can really distort someone's mind and their point of view of the world and, and how this, the allied liquor industries was that concerned where they like were pursuing it to the, the degree that they were even trying to stop the film. And we've seen previously with like Casablanca and the MPAA kind of trying to adjust and switch things around. And this film kind of started with an incomplete script. And I think that helped them get to the point where they could kind of bypass the MPAA and not run into as many restrictions. But to me, looking back at it now in history, I think this is really just a compliment of just how well this film kind of shows it and how well we dive into that psyche of Don and, and how disturbing it gets. And it's, and to me, it's just, you get moments of this film where you're like, Oh, a drink would be nice. And then you like, see how this movie can continues to unfold and get worse and worse that you're like, wow, <laughs> by like third act, you're like, what was I really thinking about drinking while watching this movie? I, yeah. No, there's n absolutely no way I'm doing that. No, there, there's no way you could be uh, after watching it. And uh, yeah, so it's just fascinating again, like how outside forces were trying to influence this film. Um, but it, it stuck through to its message and, and it kept on going. So moving on to the story. So that was so Thursday. Don gets the gets his drinks he's able to sneak away from his brother doesn't have to go on this weekend trip which was mm -hmm. meant to get don sober yeah and to get him back into a good state of mind so on friday he goes back to nats and he starts telling a story about how he first met helen and this is actually where i thought the only comedy of the film existed was in this flashback and the flashback is of don going to the opera house and he's watching uh this performance and all he can focus on are the performers drinking during the song and all he can see is just the champagne being poured and all he can think about is the bottle of liquor that he stored in his coat pocket so what so it was like funny because it just cuts back and forth to to don just sweating it out like man i really need that drink i really need that drink making no. very expressive faces yeah right? like german expressionism though yeah exactly and, and and again like it's great direction by wilder where he keeps on cutting back and forth between the drinks on the stage to Don sweating the drinks on the stage, John, uh, Don, John, Don <laughs> sweating even more. And um, 
and then you know then it, it reveals that he goes and gets the code and then he gets mixed up and that's how he meets helen and the end of that whole flashback uh, at least for that part of it he um he drops the bottle and he's and but then he goes with helen to this party because he's like oh they have cocktails there so you think like oh okay this bottle smashed he's out he's not going to go drink he's going to go spend his time with helen no, he's going to go spend his time with Helen and get drunk drinking cocktails at this party. Yeah, and that was one of my favorite lines. And again, there are really funny lines in this. And even though it's still fueling his addiction and it's sad, but so Don speaking to Helen, it's the first time they ever met. And he says, what, what kind of party did you ask me to go to? <laughs> and she says, a cocktail party. And then he says, does the invitation still stand? So he, he obviously performs it in a much better way than I just did, but it's a really funny line that he's just like, Oh, I'm going like, I'm definitely going now. I had no interest and their whole relationship might not even exist if it weren't for alcohol and, and his addiction. So that again, kind of ties and it ties into this like cyclical nature, like we talked about earlier. And it, it just, it links him back to alcohol. And, and in a way, Don probably thinks about the only reason why I have Helen and the only reason why she stayed is because of my addiction, because of alcohol. I met her because of it. She stays around because of it. And if I can kind of continue this cycle, we'll kind of be together forever. And if you think about that from such a goofy kind of simple line, it it is showing that weird dichotomy that this film has of, of using comedy in a way to kind of make you think more and then kind of think too much where you're like, this is so dark and, and, and disturbing in a yeah. way. You feel bad laughing at it. And, um, and I think what... What really then kind of starts to make you realize how deep they're going into it is the flat is Don continues the story and he goes to the next flashback, which is of him overhearing uh, hearing Helen's parents in like a hotel lobby being like a little critical about the decision to date Don. And they, they've never met before, but just by chance, he overhears them. And that's where Don's fears start to set in. So you actually know that. Don had stopped drinking a little bit, or at least he wasn't drinking as much around Helen. Well, he kind of says that he stopped drinking, right? But yeah, it, we don't know really when it kind of restarted. Yeah, but clearly, like that moment when he when he realized, like, oh, I'm a failure, and these people haven't even met me yet. That's when, that's when the addiction comes back. That's where the cycle starts again. That's when he goes back to his apartment to go drink because he can't cope with his failures, which is again is a sign of addiction of some a sign of someone going through a mental struggle because they. They lack something, some chemical imbalance in their brain, and they use alcohol as a way to balance it out, which is the wrong way to approach it. But that's how Don deals with it. And then he gives another great monologue back at his apartment when Helen comes back to try and find him, and, and Wick is there. And Wick at that moment is actually protective of his brother. Wick at the beginning of the film is saying, like, fuck Don. You know, he can, you know, screw himself with his addiction. But then when you see this flashback, which is, I think, three years earlier, he's very protective. He's very. You know, he's he's that older brother. He's you know wants to make sure Don is okay and tries to. You know, he says to Helen, "Oh, that's my bottle of liquor that was sitting out there." And so then it turns into this great monologue uh, by Don, and, and he talks about where the addiction started. That he was at college. He was just, he was told he was a great writer. He was called like Hemingway esque, which really got to him. And then it he started drinking because again, like it helped him become more creative. It it helped him start to become a better writer. And then when he was told that he was so great, he let, he dropped out of college and he moved to New York, but then he doesn't necessarily become successful at first. But then that cycle keeps on going and going and going because he just needs the alcohol to what he feels like to fuel his creativity when really it's just feeding his addiction. 
Yeah, there's two things I want to talk about. One, we'll talk about Helen and Wick because they're really important. They're kind of a support structure. But more so, I want to talk about is the, Ben mentioned that Helen and Wick are kind of at their wit's end and they're fed up. And you get that from the first scene, but I don't think you really see more of that until they realize that he's not coming back, that he's been drinking all night, that he's forgot to even go back to go to their family kind of farm. So at that point, this was actually the first scene that I, I directed for this film and it was in front of my whole class and this is like the first scene where we had to kind of get everyone and, and arrange it together and I had to talk to the actors and, and go through the whole process of, of filming the scene and where I found some of my differences, it was kind of similar in a way that I felt like I kind of shot it nowhere nearly, <laughs> nowhere near as good as Billy Wilder, obviously I'm never going to say that, but what I found as one of the like weak links to the film in terms of its performance was Philip Terry as Wick. So Wick is Don's brother. And maybe it's the fact that this film starts and it's at such a high level where they're so pissed, right? Especially when he doesn't come back and Wick realizes that like he's done, he's on another binge and bender. And he's, this is like his end point. He's given up on him basically, right? Basically. Right. And this is probably only like 30 minutes into the film. So I just don't think Philip Terry's performance just goes there enough. He just he seems like not as like fully aggressive and pissed off. He just kind of feels like he's reading lines off angrily. I don't know. What did did am I just reading too much into this cuz I spent so much time with it or what do you feel about Philip Terry as Wick? Because yeah, he's I, not huge in the film, but. No, he's not. I think that it's a little I think he is impactful, but he also doesn't have that much screen time, so you don't is he he's not really in the rest of the film as soon as he goes away for the weekend like that's it like it, well you in see him again, you see him again it, in the yeah. flashback and i i like that i like that he at one at the present day in the film he's like fucked on but then in the past you can tell that he truly does care and wanted the best for him but yeah it was don's own addiction that basically pushed his brother away but then helen i'm not gonna say she's naive but she she loves don she you know she's trying to make sure that she still loves him enough and, and gets him through his drinking problem. And that's why she sticks around. And, and while it's great and all, sometimes you do want to just say, Helen, like just leave. Like he's kind of just gone at this point, but she sticks through and, and that's what ultimately brings Don out at the end. Yeah. I, and I wanted to talk about, since we are kind of breaking down the flashbacks here and Ben, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Casablanca, our last episode was the first Oscar Best Picture winner that had a flashback, right? Like, at all, it just had a flashback. I believe so. I, I can't think of another film that had a flashback. I mean, there's kind of, like, fantasy sequences in some other films, but can you think of any other film that we've seen, Best Picture-wise, that had a, has a, had a flashback? No, I, I would say that's probably... Yeah, that's definitely the only one looking at the list of, and, of, of, the, other, of the other films. Yeah, there's definitely... Yeah, it's, yeah, Casablanca was the first one, and then, uh, yeah, Last Weekend repeats that yeah so we have kind of something new that's in our kind of best picture um construction of the film and it's different and that's something that we kind of not to go too much into our previous podcast but it's something that we kind of didn't like about it it was it, it kind of didn't play right it didn't work that well in the film and it kind of took us out of the film where i feel like in the lost weekend this is like exactly how you do a flashback sequence not only does it add so much context so much history to all of our characters we understand why wicks at his like wit's edge and why helen still loves him desperately because she sees the soft like romantic sweet man that don is um when he's sober but 
what did you think about them integrating these flashbacks? And it works so well, I think, personally, with the bar and Don sitting down with Nat, telling a story. I feel it's so natural. I agree. I also, though, slightly disagree because I don't like the first flashback, the one of the when they're at the opera house and they're getting the, the coat. I get why they did it to kind of set up the whole like how he meets, meets Helen. But if you didn't have that, I think he still could have gotten the same approach across because the main thing is how he talks about why he became addicted how he how he reveals to helen like yeah i'm a drunk I, you know but then also at the same time you do get that it's a funny scene to to watch him struggle to watch his stage play but then also when you hear about this film was reworked because people thought it was funny was maybe they didn't need that scene because but who knows maybe they add, they left that in just because they needed some sort of relief in the film mm. they had to add some kind of some kind of uh lighthearted moment or some comedic moment to keep the audience engaged yeah i can i can certainly see that but for me where i would kind of argue and rebuttal against it is that it kind of it weirdly comes down to a prop or a costume which is his coat which is kind of signifies his addiction has the bottle and it gets misplaced and it kind of creates this drama and it's i think a really funny interesting idea to have like someone lose a coat and that's how they meet it's romantic it's sweet it's but then when we get later into the film that coat plays back and I think yeah. we'll talk about it more when it comes to it but that that just shows how well this script is written and just how everything ties together in, in such a tight way that's very impactful to all the characters and then leads to such a really great compelling story so yeah I didn't think of it that way but that, that's fair so I like it's fine to have it in there is it my I don't I just don't think it was like the best thing they could have done I thought the second flashback was good but yeah, it, it does work though for the story. It really does keep driving it forward. Um, and as the story keeps on going, so that so Friday, uh, you know, Don just kind of drinks himself again. Then Saturday, he's starting to feel a little bit more hungover. He's starting that you know that little monster in him that you know he's starting to be like, okay, I need more alcohol. I, I need it to you know to actually feel normal because he's going through withdrawal symptoms. Because when he wakes up in the morning, he has no alcohol. He drink a whole bottle, and then it becomes kind of this pretty iconic scene that the way it was shot because he walks down uh, i think it's third avenue new york city and they hit cameras throughout the whole avenue to get real reactions to people to seeing this guy in a drunken state walking down the street trying to look for a pawn shop because he's trying to pawn off his typewriter and all the pawn shops are closed and you find out it's because of yum kipper and i actually think it's it's kind of significant that they choose that as the holiday one billy wilder was jewish himself so he clearly knew what he was doing, putting that holiday in. And the idea of that holiday is to not necessarily repent for your sins, but to think about how to be a better person. You know, there's a fast that's involved with Yom Kippur. It's supposed to be a very inner holiday where you're thinking about yourself and how do I become a better person? So for Don, the irony is that he doesn't want to be a better person. He just wants to get himself drunk just so he can be feeling like a normal self for him. So I found that to be very fascinating and a very cool way to integrate that holiday into this film and, and the addiction that Don is going through. Yeah, I love that. I actually didn't even know about any of that. And it, one, it's weird because that holiday was just like a week ago, right? Yeah. And contextually and in our time now in 2021. And again, it just shows how detailed this script is that even a passing line where, you know, the line is there to create conflict so he can't get alcohol, so he can be in a more paranoia state, so it can continue forward. 
throughout the plot but then knowing it's because of that specific detail with that holiday that kind of breaks it all down like that is so interesting and it's it's this is a film that you can watch and watch over and over again and you just pick apart and find nuances like that yeah there's so many little things like that that gets added in and I think this might be a, a good place to talk about the score Definitely. of the film. So the score is done by Miklos Rosa, and I love this score. I think it's one of the best scores that we've seen so far and that I th- I think that we will see. Um, he, he's done a lot of great stuff, but what makes this score so amazing is the use of a theremin. And for those who don't know what a theremin is, um, it's this... I'm just, it's like these two rods and it makes these crazy sounds and they're most iconic and like a sci-fi type of sound and maybe editing Ben will throw in a little theremin sound right there to kind of let you all know contextually what it sounds like So the way the theremin is used, it, it's sort of used to signal Don's addiction. So every time he has alcohol or he's about to take a drink, that's when the theremin comes in. It adds this very spooky, ethereal you know, sound to the score that is very unknown for its time. No one knew where it was coming from. It's this electronic sound. And again, so it adds that idea of that addiction and alcoholism or these foreign concepts or these foreign sounds to people. And it becomes so dramatic. It really, the score really is dramatized and heightens up. And I actually was trying to think of other scores that sound similar to it. And tell me if you agree with this, but I think it sounds similar to the Hateful Eight score, Star Wars, and the Twilight Zone score. Yeah, I could see a lot of that. I mean, the influence that it has with like 50 sci-fi and a lot of like the schlocky kind of B or even like D tier kind of sci-fi films i think you could see a lot of the theremin used and that's actually something i even wrote in my note where i was like this sounds like a lot of sci-fi films yeah. and I, at the point at the point i didn't even know what a theremin was and then i kind of like through learning about this and, and seeing it, i'm like wow the connection's right there it's so interesting and i also wrote that alcohol has its own theme song essentially so like you said when alcohol and drinking and don becomes more and more drunk it's like a theremin comes more and more into play and it and it does feel it's like this haunting sense this other other nature kind of sense where i could see as an audience never really hearing this instrument before just being confused like not understanding how to take this and and not understanding whether to take this seriously or just to laugh because they're like what is this wailing noise that yeah. i'm hearing like I, I i could understand not being able to comprehend that yeah it's spooky so it's unsettling and then the score with everything else is just and the reason why I said Star Wars because it does these huge swells that are iconic within a Star Wars soundtrack where it just builds and builds and builds and it just booms. And, and that's where the drama is and so much about the film. And so when talking about the scene where Don is walking down Third Avenue trying to find a pawnbroker to sell off his typewriter is because it, it that's when the score is like really heightened. That's when you really feel Don's struggle at its highest because he hasn't had a drink yet. He just... he desperately needs it he just wants a fucking drink just so he can feel again like what he feels like is normal for himself and he's able to he's able to get some sort of money he's able to get uh, a drink um because he goes to gloria who they don't really say specifically if she's a prostitute they make a lot of allusions to it but they won't they don't outwardly say it again it's another 
MPA type of thing where they don't say it and she gives him money but then in his like half you know hungover state uh, he falls down the stairs as he's going down he's knocked unconscious and that leads into the next day which is Sunday can I stop you right there Ben okay. because we, we can't skip over this scene without talking about the kiss the infamous, ki- infamous oh, kiss <laughs> what? Yeah, what, yeah 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 so we have Gloria who's played by Doris Dowling and she is 1000% I don't know how else you could see this film and not think that she's a prostitute I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but it's clear that, like you said, the MPAA is probably kind of dampering that. Maybe it was more um, kind of obvious in the script, but there's even a moment earlier in the film where she's oh, she keeps chatting up Don. She keeps like saying how and alluding basically how she wants to be with Don. But at the same time, he's alluding back that like she's she's a working girl. She's definitely on the job. Like he thinks that she he just wants money. She just wants money from him. And uh, a random guy even comes into the bar, which I love. I love this scene where he's looking for Gloria and he's asking for Gloria. And Gloria was just like, "Oh no, she's not here." Like she's like alluding that she's not. Um, you know, a sex worker in order to and kind of Don knows at this point, but she's basically like shooing this guy away to be like, Don, see, like, this is how much I care about you. Like, I want to be with you, Don, not this random dude, even though he'll pay me. So it's one just crazy for the time. Like this film is already so ahead of its time in terms about talking about addiction and mental health and to include someone who is like a sex worker like that. And not only a sex worker, you know, you don't see her naked. She's not like completely used or objectified she's a pretty well-rounded character and you know she's mainly used just for don to kind of get throughout the film but she has depth in there and she's definitely more of than a, a simple character and i had to stop you because the kiss is so it's so uncomfortable to watch because you know it's like don's elm said his very wits end like he literally at this point looks like he's about to like die he, like he yeah. could like fall over and die at any point and he convinces gloria to like just give give her some money and he's basically like flirting with her he like knows how to push her buttons and give her that love and affection in order for him to get money to then go buy booze so i wanted to like stop and just talk about their uh, kind of character and their connection between the two of them because they are similar in a way but he's really kind of disrespects her in the end and i wish she had a little bit more in the story to do Um, but what do you think about gloria yeah, I, I think mainly what it does is that it shows that Don is not faithful to Helen, you know, because he's... Interesting. I don't think that at all, actually. You really? Yeah. Because if he's willing to charm up this prostitute that he knows has money, like, who, like I just think about, like, what else could Don have done? Done. You sure. Know? And so I so that, that was the first thing that jumps to my mind, because he, he does kiss her. He does try to woo her. He, you know, he promises that he'll take her on a date. And then... Yeah, it's a little, it's an awkward kiss. It's an awkward, you know, because like, you can just tell that, yeah, I'm only here just to get money from you. I'm not here to apologize. And so, which is sick. It, it It's sickening to see it's it's dark. And, and again, that's what feeds the addiction is that I'm just going to be a shitty person because I just want to get what I want. Yeah. And it has another great um, kind of flashback to Gloria's earlier lines. And I'm not sure why her character is portrayed this way, but she has like tons of just really awesome slang that she uses throughout the film like she instead of saying natural she just says natch and i found it really interesting coming from 2021 where some of the words that she's saying and and the abbreviations that she's using on words like i i didn't think they existed until like the 
the 21st century. I was honestly kind of shocked to even hear Natch in a film from 1944, <laughs> right? Like, have, I, I didn't know it was that old of slang, and maybe that's on me, but I found it really compelling even more so the way the screenplay kind of, again, brings it back in where after he kisses her, gets the money, and she's like, oh, like, we really will go on a date. Like, you really mean all the things you just said? And he just says, like, Natch, Gloria, Natch. <laughs> And so it's not only a joke, it's so sad and depressing because it's like you're seeing him, how far he actually will go. But then he's kind of, you know, zinging her and giving back that. And it's also just the way he's reading those lines. Like, he's so just done. Like, he's yeah. he's saying a line that should be so fun and, and catchy. And you could see the life just drain from him entirely at this point. Yeah, you can definitely tell. And, and that, again, like that goes into Malin's performance is that he... He, he he probably stayed up all night to get that look. Like he probably did something to really look like that grungy and that out of it. That when they were able to film, that he was able to give the lines and and yeah, you can just tell that I just want the. You can just tell that he just wants the money. I just want the money from you, Gloria, so I can go get that drink that that I need and able to survive. Um, yeah, and Ray Milland actually spent one night in Bellevue Hospital as a patient to kind of like get to know more about his character and the psyche. Um, and he also would stop eating regularly as uh, a lot of alcoholics did and, and forgot at the time. So he really dedicated a lot of his uh, time and energy to kind of get this look and, and to build this character so well. And I think it really does play off on screen. Yeah. And then that stay at Bellevue hospital leads into um, the end of this scene with Gloria, where he falls down the set of stairs and that ends the Saturday portion and goes into Sunday where he wakes up in this alcoholics ward or what this character, the nurse, um, his name is Bim. Uh, he calls it hangover plaza. And it's, it's just a full of, of people who are getting over their, their drunken states. There's a lot of, you know, mumblings. You can tell people, you can tell this is the place where people who are addicted, who are alcoholics, they have to go and, and have to be treated medically because they just, they are not able to survive, you know, on their own. And again, it's it's the humor that Bim, this guy who's a nurse who clearly has done this over and over again, he's just he's seen you know he's seen so many. He's seen the tricks that they try to pull. He knows the lines that they try to do. He's he's asking Don, like, oh, what's your address? And Don's still very worried because no one knows where he is still. And he's like, oh, no, you don't need to worry about that. I'll walk home. Don't worry. He's like, oh, we'll get your wallet. We'll get your information. We don't even need that. I don't even need that from you. So there's there's humor playing into it, but it doesn't really lead into just how scary it is until Bim is telling him about the kind of mental state that he'll go through through withdrawal and seeing creatures just like how someone else in the ward sees bugs and insects crawling all over them at night. Delirium is a disease of the night is the line. I really like that. I think it's a very, it's a dark line. It, you know, delirium is the disease of the night. And uh, it's, it's said very hauntingly. And then, yeah, what happens is that, yeah, he sees when he goes to sleep and later that night, people start to freak out. They start to have delirium tremens. And it's actually a little interesting because he mentions that a pink elephant, and there's actually a beer, a Belgian beer called delirium, that has a pink elephant on it. Delicious beer. Too. Yeah. It's a very good beer actually. Um, and so, yeah, so Don's able to escape from this because he, everyone's distracted by, all, you know, the other patients del- del- delirium tremens. And so he's able to escape. He gets out and then he steals whiskey. He, he goes to his store and instead of paying for it, 
he steals the whiskey, which again is another low point in the in the cycle of addiction where now he's stealing for it, where that's what's going to fuel him. So following this scene, you know, he's drinking once again, but he's kind of, I guess, been sober maybe for like five, ten hours. We don't really know how long he's out uh, in the psych ward, kind of being stuck there in that drunk, drunk tank, essentially. So he goes home, and this is where we get to the third and final scene that I uh, directed from this film. And, and again, it's probably one of the most iconic scenes from the film. It is, yeah. And it's funny that I ended up on the scene because I was really trying to do a scene between Helen and Don because I really love their their relationship and their connection throughout this film. I think it's the strongest kind of interaction between two characters, and it's really touching. But I couldn't find another actor, which is a classic just struggle that you go through not only as student filmmakers but just really as filmmakers in general is just finding not only the right part but when you're in film school just finding anyone just finding someone to like fill up the screen right so i struggled with this it was close to the end of the year i couldn't get anyone so i'm like what scene i'm like there's there's so much of this movie it's just don so i'm like what scene can i really do that shows don's character and sums him up pretty well and just only using don as as the character so i'm like the bat scene, of course, I'm gonna have to do. I'm gonna have to do that. But then, on the other hand, I'm like, how do I portray the bat? And at this point, I've again only read this script, so I have no idea how they portray it in the film. Right? It's the 40s, so in my head, I'm like, this is probably a string. Like, how am I gonna portray this bat? And I said, like, fuck it, forget about it. I don't know how they show it in the film. I'm just gonna show it basically as if like the camera was the bat, right? Yeah. To kind of go psychologically in and have it haunting him, basically. So. The way I, I filmed it was just him freaking out and like you can hear it through noises that's kind of supposed to show his like psyche and, and how he's perceiving what he's seeing, but actually not showing the bat. But in the film, Ben, it's, it's a little bit different, right? Yeah. So in the film, he at first, Don, he like sits in his chair and all of a sudden he sees a rat coming out of the wall and it's like chewing through the wall and that's starting to disturb him. And then he hears a bat come into through his window. And when you watch it, you you can tell it's a fake bat, you know, at least from the 2021 perspective, you can tell it's a fake bat. It was probably yeah, a bat on the string. But then what ensues is the bat attacks the rat and blood starts to drip down the wall. And that's when Don starts to scream bloody murder and, and has his delirium experience. And he's, he's absolutely freaked out. And the way that you were describing about using the bat's POV to then show John I keep saying John and it's Don. <laughs> it's very close. It's it's too close. Um, and so and so I actually think it would have been interesting if Wilder had done a POV of the bat onto Don and was like quick dolly in or like quick or zooms in and out into Don's face as he's screaming. I think that would have been really effective and would have really played in the psychology of it. But then again, it's it's also another it's another good scene that it successfully does that psychology and building it up, you know, and uh, it it's probably again it's probably the most famous scene from it because for its time, you know, how are you going to get a bat to do something like that? <laughs> you know, and it's pretty gruesome to see blood dripping down the wall and to have this lead guy screaming bloody murder and he just like can't take it anymore, and um, and that's how the Sunday portion of. Uh, of the lost weekend ends. And it's kind of funny because when you're watching the film, you're like, Oh, the lost weekend, you feel like it's probably only like a Friday to Sunday or maybe Thursday to Sunday, but it's from Thursday to Tuesday. So 
I kind of like, why is this called the lost weekend? I get because it does take place over a weekend, but now we're spilling over to like the middle of the weekend. It just makes no sense. I think it's just a great title. I mean, I maybe it's actually just the weekend in the film or in the book originally, and then they kind of made it longer. Um, I don't know. We don't really know unless we read the book, but it's a great name. I mean, what are you gonna yeah. call this? Like the six day binge or something? Like yeah. it's, it's not nearly as as like creative and and as passionate as a name. I don't think. Yeah, and I should correct myself. That's actually on Monday. He has delirium tremens. So Sunday he stayed. He got out. Monday steals a bottle of whiskey and hallucinates. And then what happens is as he's hallucinating and freaking out, Helen is able to get into his apartment, and Donna has no idea what's going on. He just like collapses. And then in the morning, Don slips out and Helen wakes up and she can't find him. Her coat's gone and she runs uh, to the pawn store because she realizes, you know, I think she finds like the bullets or she starts to kind of put it together. Like, oh, my God, the gun. She gets to the pawn shop. The pawn broker is like, yeah, he pawned his coat for the gun. And then she runs home. And just before Don, Don's like writing his suicide note. He's ready to go. And. Helen stops him. Helen, you know, basically convinces him and that he is better than just Don the drunk, that he's the same, that he's this one person that he can fight his addiction. He can get through it. And that's how Don is able to sort of pull himself out at the end. Yeah. I think we can't really go throughout this film any further now that we finished it, but I don't think we can not talk about Helen and Jane Wyman playing Helen because I think she is it's really just the saddest character because with Don, you have levity because when he's drunk, he's fun. Like he, he loves his life. He loves when he's drunk. And it's not until later where you really see him become a different person and, and kind of lose his mind in a way. And from the very beginning, before Don even leaves and convinces them to go alone, there's this great line where Helen says, we're both trying. You're trying not to drink and I'm not, and I'm trying not to love you. And, like, that line alone is so fucking powerful. Yeah. And it says so much about their relationship. And it's she says it in, like, a, f- like, f- kind of fun, offhanded way where it's not like a fuck you. Like, uh, like you don't know how hard this is. Like, th- this could have been so much more overdramatic. And they definitely do have very intense uh, scenes together, especially at the end. I mean, he's trying to kill himself. And, again, we come back to the coat, which the coat is, is what brought him together. It's it's what had the liquor in it, and it's it's why they're together. It's why they're still a couple, and now it's coming, and it's going to be the end of them. It's it's what she figures out is he has a gun, and he sold the coat, and the coat then comes back to drinking, which is then going to lead him to killing himself. So again, it's all this the cyclical nature of all these elements connecting back to each other, which I found so freaking powerful, and it's really all because of Jane Wyman's performance because I she is so forgiving and so loving. And I think we see that with the scene where he doesn't go to his parents. And even though he makes like wick go through all these different lies about why he's not there, why he didn't see his parents, she still loves him and like knows that he can, he can do better because she sees the other man that he is. So it's, it's just such a powerful character because I, I I think anyone can really relate to this. I mean, addiction is such a popular and and common thing in, in people's lives. And we've all kind of been there to see someone struggle through that. And even if it's like a mental health issue, I think there's always someone in our life who's just trying to remind us of the better person that we are or the person that we could be or, or how we can kind of break through this kind of mold that we're stuck in. So 
but we definitely had to stop and, and talk about her because I think she not only gives a great performance when she's like screaming and yelling and they're having a, an insane, insane fight about his life, but also just these soft spoken moments where they fall in love and they meet. And that's why I think that flashback scene is like so powerful. It's because it's, it kind of ties her character so significantly to his life. And you know, that creates again, that cyclical, cyclical circle back to both of them together and, and hopefully him ridding himself of this addiction. Yeah. hundred percent. And she also gives another great line at the end where she goes, I'd rather have you drunk than dead. And again, like it, it, what John was just saying, it just plays into that. She's willing to stick around that, that she finds something in Don that she wants to stick around and be with. And the end is then culminated in some really great lines. So, Basically, Helen is like, write it down, write out the addiction, get back to becoming a writer. And Don, he's like, okay, like, I'm going to write it. And he says, it's going to be about a messed up life, about a man and a woman in a bottle, about nightmares, horrors, humiliations, all the things I want to forget, which is this whole lost weekend, which she's going to write about. Helen says, put it all, all down on paper, get rid of it that way. Tell it all to whom it may concern, and it concerns so many people. Don, of course, you couldn't write the beginning because you didn't know the ending. Only now, only now, you know, the ending. So now the ending is that Don is able to fight through his addiction and battle through, or at least that's what you hope is the result. And then it ends with his monologue from Don. And he says, the way I stood there packing my suitcase, only my mind wasn't on the suitcase and it wasn't on the weekend, nor was it on the shirts I was putting in the suitcase either. My mind was hanging outside the window, the bottle. It was suspended just about 18 inches below. And out there in the great big concrete jungle, I wonder how many others there are like poor bedeviled guys on fire with thirst, such colorful figures to the rest of the world as they stagger blindly towards another binge, another bender, another spree. And that is done over the shot of the same exact shot of the beginning of the film where it pulls out of the window and goes back to the skyline, New York, completing that circle, you know, that cycle again of addiction. And he, and he talks about how so many other people are going through this which I'm sure resonated with so many people watching it and the audiences and it ends this film on a, on a hopeful note, I would say, because you're like, okay, good for Don. Don gets out of it. It gives a very great positive message and it, and it shows that there's so many other people like Don, especially just in a city like New York, it's this big, vast concrete jungle and everyone's going through something. And I, I thought it was a great way to end it. It plays back to that whole theme and idea of a circle there's so many things I would love to say about a circle. I think the numbers three and six are repeated. And to me, those are very cyclical things. So when we put a three together, it's like an infinity thing. And then a six has the circle in it. Um, and so I, I just feel like that can just be talked for, for like an hours on end, just about the way they use numbers and repetition. But I feel like we've really hammered home this film. It, it's a phenomenal film touches on so many for its time racy subjects and even for now like i feel like still talking about addiction in, in today's world and in film and television is very like whoa like when you think about uh when you think about ted lasso and the mental struggles that they're going through and, and that's more mental health struggles than like addiction but it's still in that same vein where it's like whoa they're really going out there they're really going on that ledge to talk about it but it's been talked about since 1945 because of the lost weekend but yeah, I think of a uh, modern film because I just actually read about this recently. Um, I'm a big fan of the MCU. Uh, you'll s listen to our uh, summer episode. You'll know that I talked a little bit about that as well. But 
recently I read something about uh, original making of like the three Iron Man and in the comics Iron Man or Tony Stark was an alcoholic and that was a huge plot line and there's a infamous story I'm, I'm blanking on the name of it where it kind of focuses on his struggle and where a lot of his problems come from liquor and, and abusing alcohol but they kind of refuse to let them go through that storyline thinking it was probably too heavy if this is like a film for kids and or if we're involving alcohol in that way so it's like interesting to even see in, in modern times within the last 20 years that people are kind of still trying to to kind of put that down let's not talk so much about that that's not really family friendly we can't sell that as a four quadrant film and you know maybe that was the case for this way back when it seems like a lot of people just didn't understand it and, and couldn't really relate to it because it was so in their face that they just either one didn't want to handle it didn't want to like sit down and actually think about that think about something that's so sad and, and something so real or it's just it was so new to them that they just really couldn't comprehend it and couldn't really understand it. So before we end it, I really wanted to ask a couple questions about just Don as a character. So it is kind of a, a hopeful, happy ending. It, you you have the feeling that he's gonna he's gonna end it the way he kind of puts his cigarette into his drink. It's kind of defining that he's done. He's not gonna continue drinking, but with his cyclical nature, it's hard not to think about maybe he does continue to drink. Maybe. This cycle does continue, and he keeps telling them that he's going to write, he's going to do this, and he's going to stop drinking. So I wanted to ask you, Ben, can we believe anything that Don says? Like, is he a reliable narrator at all? For just the ending of the film? Or, or in, in its entirety. I mean, that's why like, I want to bring up this question, because like, can we believe what he's saying at the end is actually true, or that it will actually happen? I think he is a reliable narrator. I, I actually do think that. I don't think there's anything that would be purposefully hidden to kind of play of his character. I do know that the book that it's based off of, there are some other aspects to his character that isn't part of the film. And yeah. one of them being this potential homosexual relationship in college, which may have kickstarted his addiction. And that's not in the film. And I, I understand why it's on there because of its time. Unfortunately, like they weren't willing to talk about homosexuality in 1945, but I still think Don's a reliable narrator. And when he does, he drops a cigarette in in this like last glass of whiskey that was sitting in his apartment. I feel like yeah, like okay, like Don really is gonna try. That like Don finally realizes like you know this this whole you know weekend that he was drinking and really almost fucked up everything. That he realizes like okay, I gotta change for the better. Yeah, I think I would agree. I think he's in a way he's brutally honest. He's like too honest with himself. He knows the good and the bad and he constantly wants to talk about that, debate it, whether it's it's possible to be a good person if you have this light and dark within you. So I think that, again, is something that's so interesting in just his character and, and the whole film. And then the kind of to wrap it up a little bit more, I know we don't have to go too personal and into things that would happened in our lives or people that we know, but do you find that it could be kind of like hard to relate to Don or can we even like fully love him as a character because we've seen some of the horrible things we, he does, you know, kissing Gloria, stealing money from multiple people, stealing money from strangers, stealing alcohol. Can we fully love him? Is it hard to relate him, to relate to him and just appreciate him as a character? No, I I can relate to him. I don't I don't find it hard. I I find it. I, I'm not you know I'm not an addict, but I can understand the the struggle that he's going through as someone who is trying to be creative that, that wants to be part of production and, and, and creating something and and to constantly feel like I need to have that creative spark and you know I know there's so many stories of people who who do become addicted who are alcoholics who 
turn to, to drugs that they need that to fuel their creative energy or even just their energy in general. And it's sad. And, and so I, I, I wouldn't shy away from it again. Like, as I talked about at the beginning of the episode, like I enjoy and I like these like fringe stories of society because it, it opens up your mind and it makes you realize there's so many people out there struggling and the depth of struggling is, is huge and it's deep. Yeah, I would definitely agree entirely. And I think even if you don't have any kind of relation to addiction or these mental health struggles, you have that relationship with either Wick or Helen. You have uh, understanding of, of wanting a person to be better, seeing seeing what this person could achieve, but how they're holding themselves back. I think we can all relate to that, whether personally or, or people in our lives. So, man... What a great, what a great flick! It really is. It's a really great film, and it's uh, there's there's a lot to talk about it. We could have talked about, I think, another hour and a half on it, but let's move on to the 18th Academy Awards. Present another great picture: the Academy Award for 1945. Produced by Paramount. Its name, The Lost Weekend. Academy Awards were held on March 8, 1946 at the Grauman's Chinese Theater in Hollywood, Los Angeles, California. The ceremony was hosted by James Stewart and Bob Hope, and this is the first ceremony after World War II. This award show featured more glamour than the previous shows during the war, and those plaster statuettes had been, that had been previously given out during the war years were now replaced with bronze statuettes with gold plating. This was the first year in which every film nominated for Best Picture won at least one Oscar, and also the first time that a sequel, The Bells of St. Mary's, has been nominated for Best Picture. And we wouldn't see that uh, having a sequel nominated for Best Picture until 1974 for The Godfather Part Two. Academy Honorary Awards went to Walter Wenger for his six-year service as president of the Academy Awards of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. Also went... One went to The House I Live In, which is a short film produced by Frank Ross and Mervyn Leroy. It was directed by Leroy, and it starred Frank Sinatra. Uh, Sinatra, he plays himself. He goes outside to take a smoke break from a recording session, and he sees about a group of 10 boys who are chasing a Jewish boy, and he intervenes, first with dialogue, then with a little speech. And his main points are that we are all Americans and that just one American's blood is as good as another and that all our religions are equally to be respected. Uh, another honorary award went to the Republic Studio, to Daniel J. Bloomberg, and the Republic Sound Department for the building of an outstanding musical scoring auditorium which revives optimum recording of conditions and combines all elements of acoustic and engineering design. And finally, there's an Academy Juvenile Award, which went to Piggy Ann Garner. 
So, Ben, I wanted to ask you about the house I live in. I, I know we're kind of both fans of Frank Sinatra, whether it's his films or his actual music. and Or his beautiful fucking face. Or his beautiful face, yeah. And, and this was actually a short film that's it's hosted by the Library of Congress. You can actually go watch this for free if you look for the house I live in and just search that. You'll find it and you'll be able to watch this 10-minute short. And it's kind of part musical where he's just kind of performing. They're giving Frank Sinatra to act and kind of sing a little bit. But... I'm curious, what do you think about this kind of message? You know, it's it's weird to think so far from World War II that you could get out of World War II fighting Nazis who are persecuting Jewish people so drastically to the degree of, you know, we don't need to go into awful details <laughs> yeah. of World War II, but to, to have an American still be biased and still be prejudiced about someone who's Jewish after going through all of World War II, like... I just don't understand that. Yeah, I I can't either. It's a little, it's just weird that they still have to make a film like this, and like they had to get Frank Sinatra to basically tell these group of kids that all religion is equal. And you would think that the American ways would already that whole value would be instilled in them from birth, but I guess not. And uh, who's to blame? I don't know, but it's a very, I get it for its time, but then watching it again from twenty twenty one is very odd. Best special effects goes to Wonder Man. Photographic effects by John P. Fulton and sound effects by Arthur Johns. This is Wonder Man is a Technicolor musical about two super identical twins, both played by Danny Kay. So I would imagine kind of some of those special effects coming in with having two twins on screen. And I kind of found that really interesting from 1944, having that kind of uh, kind of effect played out on screen this is fulton's first of three oscar wins including the parting of the red sea and the ten commandments from 1956 best film editing went to national velvet to robert j kern uh robert j kern is the brother of hal c kern who was also a film editor and the kern brothers are the only instance of two brothers both winning an academy award for best editing hal kern won for gone with the wind uh no lost weekend in this category I think it's okay that it's not there, but also I kind of think it should have been nominated at least. Absolute bullshit, I think. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Like, I think the editing, it d- defines this film and being so modern and unique. And they're, they're, we let it didn't even touch on so many of the technical aspects because there's so much to talk about with the characters and the story. But the editing is amazing in this film and it's the editing that you know sometimes it's invisible there's that classic kind of editing where you're not really taking it in but there's other editing where it's just diving deep into don and his psychosis psychosis and thinking about all these things and thinking about alcohol and and transitioning from like a fade in from a clock to another clock like these visuals that we've nowhere near seen some of the editing i think in any of the best picture winners yet and yeah crazy absolute crazy i i I thought it was amazing yeah you heard him Best Cinematography Color goes to Leon Shamroy for Leave Her to Heaven. So looking up this film, you know, we try to look a little bit about it, get a little more information. But I I saw that this was a Technicolor noir film. And I couldn't help think about, like, how beautiful this is and how just not often you see something that's Technicolor, but also a noir film that's so centered on, you know, black and white or dark and, and, and light shadows. So I, one, just bookmarked that immediately. Shamroy and Charles Lang actually share the record for the most Oscar nominations for cinematography. During his half-century career, he gained 18 nominations with four wins, sharing the record for wins with Joseph Ruttenberg. Best Cinematography Black and White went to The Picture of Dorian Gray to Harry Stradling. 
This is the eighth film adaptation of Dorian Gray. Straddling is a 12-time nominee and would go on to win his second Academy Award for My Fair Lady, the 1964 Best Picture winner. Nominated, though, in this category is The Lost Weekend. And I'm going to go on my little rant that that should have won for Best Cinematography. It is in such great cinematography. There, we Again, we didn't talk about it because of how strong the script was. But the amount of these really great dolly shots, the the... The way that Wilder structures his foreground, middle ground, and background, it, it, it plays around with it. There are so many scenes and shots where you know you have Don all the way in the front, and then you have Helen and Wick in the background. The scene when Don overhears Helen's parents in the hotel lobby. You have Don making a phone call in the foreground in a telephone booth, and in the background, you see Helen taking the call by the desk. So it's these really just like well-intricated shots that is consistent throughout the film. And it again, it makes it feel more modern. It, it plays really into that, and I, I thought it was great. The cinematography in this film, yeah, it was really outstanding. I ke- I kept thinking about this shot where Don essentially loses. We didn't talk too much about this, but he loses his his uh, bottle of liquor because he has two and he hid one, and he can't find it. And there's just like beautiful shot where he lays on the on the sofa and he looks up and kind of hidden on the fan on the ceiling, he hid a bottle of liquor and. All you see is a silhouette of it. You just see this beautiful big silhouette and shadow created by the bottle. And it's not only a gorgeous image to look at, but it's so compelling because it's this looming weight that he has. And it's it's compelling just from a narrative, from his character and his perspective again. This film plays so much into his perspective. And, you know, it's not like it goes into first person and you're watching Don like chug a bottle, but it really brings you down to earth and tries to show you how Don is seeing the world. And I don't think we've seen a movie really like that. And maybe it just was underappreciated because the picture of Dorian Gray had some great revealing shots. And I just couldn't believe that this is also the eighth adaptation already in 1944. (laughs) There's been eight adaptations of Dorian Gray, but hey, cheers to them. Best art direction for interior decoration color goes to Frenchman's Creek. This is art direction by Hans Dreher and Ernest Vigt. Interior decoration by Samuel M. Comer. Best art direction, interior direction, black and white, went to Blood on the Sun. Art direction by Weird Innen and interior direction by A. Roland Fields. This is Innen's second consecutive Oscar after he previously won for Wilson from 1944. Best sound recording goes to Stephen Dunn for The Bells of St. Mary. This is Dunn's second Oscar win of four total nomination, and he previously won for This Land is Mine in 1943. Best original song went to It Might As Well Be Spring from State Fair. Music by Richard Rogers, lyrics by Oscar Hammerstein. Uh, This is Rogers' first and only win. It's Hammerstein's second win after previously winning for The Last Time I Saw Paris from Lady Be Good. And this is the famous Rogers and Hammerstein duos uh, for the pair of musical creators for so many great iconic musicals best scoring of a musical picture goes to georgie stall for anchors away this is the last year that there would be more than five nominees in each of the best scoring categories stall conducted a stage band that actually toured with judy garland and mickey rooney and he was also given one of the ruby slippers by judy garland after finishing the wizard of oz i hope he kept on to that because that is worth a lot of money yeah, and actually in September 2001, Stoll's uh, Best Score Oscar it was offered in his state sale and at an auction house. And Kevin Spacey was actually the one 
that bought it and he gave it back to the academy and he bought it for $156,000. Yeah, he probably wishes he still had that money. Yeah, he probably does. Moving on to best scoring of a dramatic or comedy picture goes to Spellbound to Miklos Raza. Uh, so Miklos Raza wins for Spellbound and not for The Lost Weekend here. So at least he does get an Oscar this year. So Rosa was nominated for both of those films, and he used the theremin in both scores. Uh, David Oselznik was the producer for Spellbound, and he threatened legal action against the use of the instrument in The Lost Weekend until it was pointed out the mere use of a particular instrument could not be copyrighted, and Spellbound ended up winning, although Rosa considers The Lost Weekend to be the stronger score. I... Again, I love the score to this film. I think it adds so much drama. It really heightens everything in the film. The mood, the use of the theremin is brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. So sad that he doesn't win for The Lost Weekend, but I'm happy that he at least won this year. Best live action short subject to real goes to Gordon Hollingshead for Star in the Night. This is a modern day retelling of the Nativity story set on Christmas Eve at a desert motel in the southwestern United States. That is the most insane log line for a short film. And I like, I need to watch this. I mean, how many modern day retellings of the nativity story? And, and now looking back on it, it's like a 60 year old retelling of the nativity story. So it's like, they're probably dressed in like forties garb yeah. and like, what does baby Jesus look like? Like, what is little baby Jesus wearing in the 1940s? I have so many questions. Honestly, the only thing that pops in my head is do you ever see the SNL sketch of the three wise men with Sylvester Stallone, Robert De Niro, and John Goodman? No, we're gonna sounds, watch that after. Sounds insane. We're gonna watch that after this recording. For those out there listening who know that, it is fucking amazing. <laughs> Moving on to best live action short subject one reel goes to Stairway to Light to Herbert Moulton and Jerry Bresler. Best documentary short subject goes to Don Siegel for Hitler Lives. Don Siegel also directed Star in the Night, the best live-action short subject to real film. And Siegel also got a start as a montage director, including films like Casablanca, which are some credit to his success and why he would later on win two Academy Awards. And his filmography also includes The Invasion of the Body Snatchers, Dirty Harry, and Escape from Alcatraz. Best documentary feature goes to The True Glory. It was a co-production of the U.S. Office of War Information and the British Ministry of Information, documenting the victory on the Western Front from Normandy to the collapse of the Third Reich. Best short subject cartoon goes to Quiet, Please. Quiet, Please is a 1945 American one-reel animated cartoon. This is the 22nd Tom and Jerry short. So another one for Tom and Jerry. Another one. (laughs) Best motion picture story. The worst category ever <laughs> goes to the house on 92nd Street to Charles G. Booth. Uh, the movie, which was shot mostly in New York City, was released shortly after the end of World War II. The house on 92nd Street was made with the full cooperation of the FBI, whose director at the time, J. Edward J. Edgar Hoover, appears during the introductory montage. The FBI agents shown in Washington, D.C. in the film were played by actual agents. And this is Booth's only career win. Uh, I thought so. I thought the story was actually interesting. Just like a, I don't like this category. Best best screenplay goes to 
The Lost Weekend, Charles Brackett and Billy Wilder from The Lost Weekend by Charles R. Jackson. I cannot be any happier for a film winning best screenplay than this one. Absolutely. I can totally agree with that. This is Brackett's first of five Oscar wins, which includes an honorary award in 1957. He would also go on to win the original screenplay category for Sunset Boulevard in 1950 and Titanic in 1953. Brackett was also a frequent collaborator with Wilder until 1950 when the two split, and he even served as the president of the Screenwriters Guild from 1938 to 39, and Ampass from 1949 to 55. This is actually Wilder's first Oscar win of his career, and, spoiler, of the evening. Best original screenplay went to Mary Louise to Richard Schweizer. Uh, this is the first international feature film to win a Best Screenplay Award, and this is Schweizer's first of two Oscars, and he would go on to win for The Search in 1948 for Best Story. Best Supporting Actress goes to Anne Revere for National Velvet. This is Revere's only Oscar win of three total nominations, including one for her role in the 1947 Best Picture winner, Gentleman's Agreement. Revere was actually part of the American Communist Party and was subsequently put on the Hollywood blacklist for her involvement. She left the Screen Actors Guild and refused to testify in front of the House on American Activities Committee. Best Supporting Actor went to James Dunn for A Tree Grows in Brooklyn as Johnny Nolan. Dunn had not worked for a major studio for five years when he was called into screen test for the role of Johnny Nolan, uh, which is which was a dreamy alcoholic father in the 20th century production of A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. Dunn had returned to Hollywood in 1944 to seek film roles, but had not applied for this part for fear of another rejection. However, friend and actress and dancer... Gloria Grafton urged casting directors involved in the extensive town search to hire him. And director uh, Ilya Kazan said he chose Dunn for the role because drinking had impacted the actor's career and because he saw, quote, a trace of pain in Dunn's face that indicated he had failed the test of life and Kazan wanted to bring that pain to the screen. Dunn reportedly drew from his own experiences for his characterization. Best Actress goes to Joan Crawford for Mildred Pierce. This is Crawford's sole career Oscar win for her portrayal of a hardworking, sacrificial, middle-class mother figure who found business success with a restaurant, but personal tragedy with her spoiled daughter in the James M. Cain story of murder, larceny, blackmail, and adultery. She was also nominated two more times for Possessed in 1947 and Sudden Fear in 1952. So, Ben, it sounds like you like this movie, I huh? love this movie. Uh, it's a it's a phenomenal film. It's uh, directed by Ma Michael Curtiz, director of Casablanca. It's this really dark thriller that is kind of told through this you know nice American life in certain parts of the film. It's it's really great, and Joan Crawford is a knockout in in the film. So I wanted to take though, the time to sort of talk about this because it's a pretty iconic moment for how Joan Crawford accepted the film. So she, what people think pretended to be ill, she could have been ill. I don't know. But she did not go to the Academy Awards that year, even though she was nominated for the role. And, and another reason why Crawford might not have been there was because she believed that Ingrid Bergman was going to win for the, uh, for the Bells of St. Mary's. And she didn't want to be present for the loss. This was kind of a big comeback film for her. And so after discovering that she had won, she reportedly re applied a ton of makeup and invited members of the press into her bedroom. And she accepted the award in bed. 
And I've just found that to be really just fascinating. There are these great photos of Joan Crawford laying in bed, holding the Oscar, looking just really happy and not sick. But I don't know. Maybe she was sick. But, John, can you guess how much the legendary Oscar, which is the only Academy Award in Crawford's career, um, sold for at auction? Mm, 100000 Nope. Higher. Uh, 300000 A little bit more. Uh, five hundred thousand? No, a little bit less. So it was sold for four hundred and twenty-six thousand. And to put that figure in perspective, in two thousand one, Spielberg, Steven Spielberg, Stevie Boy, uh, paid five hundred seventy thousand for the Oscar that belonged to Crawford's arch rival Bette Davis for her role in Jezebel. And Spielberg paid even more. He paid six hundred and seven and five hundred thousand dollars for Clark Gable's Oscar for it. it. Happened one night. In December 2011, Orson Welles' Academy Award for co-writing the screenplay Citizen Kane sold for approximately 862000 So a lot of money being spent on their, on these Oscars. I actually think the one that I would want out of all of those is Clark Gable's for It Happened One Night. Just loving that film so much. But yeah, this is pretty iconic. This was a pretty iconic moment, not just for Joan Crawford's career, but for just the Academy Awards and pop culture. Best actor goes to Ray Milan for The Lost Weekend as Don Burnham. Woo! Now, Milan had a 60-plus year career, and he was even a director. Ray Milan's Oscar-winning performance in this film is his only Academy Award and nomination. Now, I found it really interesting because not only is he a great actor with such a long career, but he actually began his film career in 1929 after serving three years as a guardsman in the Royal Household Calvary based in London. You know, after he appeared in a lot of British films, he later on came to America where he would become a heavy hitter and a signed hitter for or signed actor for Paramount for 21 years. And then even more interesting as we go through and he gets older, he becomes more of a character actor. And in 1972, Milan starred in two horror films, one simply titled Frogs, which co-starred Sam Elliott and Joan Van Ark in which Milan plays a wealthy plantation owner who dumps waste material in a swamp, causing an enormous disruption of nature. And the second, which was called The Thing with Two Heads, is considered a cult classic where Milan plays a brain surgeon with terminal illness who who transplants his head onto a healthy body, that of an American prisoner. So this was like so fascinating to hear some of his his filmography and yes we are you know a film podcast specifically about the oscars and it's prestigious and honorable but you know you got to mention the crazy wacky horror films you know that this academy award winner has done and and also great little other fact about milan is that when he won his academy award he went up to the podium and you know thinking about all of the ones that you've probably seen the most recent ones it's just a actor going up there to talk about his his takes on the industry, his takes on some political topic. And what did Ray Milan do? He went up there, acknowledged the crowd's applause, and then just left without saying a single thing. I, I like that. I like that move. That's badass. It, That's it, what it is. It is pretty badass. And you know what? And the nominees in both the actor and actress categories are pretty significant. So you had Milan winning. He was nominated against Bing Crosby, Gene Kelly, and Gregory Peck. And Crawford, she was up against Ingrid Berman, Greer Garson, Jennifer Jones, and Gene Tierney. So there's a lot of heavy swingers uh, in this year. And uh, yeah, so great on Ray Milland. Absolutely deserves it for the last weekend. He was phenomenal in the film. Best director goes to 
Billy Wilder for The Lost Weekend. So for this film, Wilder became the first person to win an Academy Award for Best Director and a Best Screenplay win for the same film. He would later win four more Oscars in his career and receive the Irving G. Thalberg Award in 1987. His other famous works include the Best Picture winner, The Apartment from 1960, and films such as Sunset Boulevard, Sabrina, Stalic, 17, Some Like It Hot, Double Indemnity, and much, much, much more. The nominees for Best Motion Picture are... Spellbound, Mildred Pierce, The Bells of St. Mary's, Anchors Away, and our winner of the 1945 Best Picture is The Lost Weekend, Charles Brackett for Paramount Pictures. This was the first time the Best Picture Oscar winner also won the prestigious top prize known as the Grand Prix at the Cannes Film Festival, making it one of three films, the other two being Marty from 1955 and not too long ago, Parasite from 2019. And they both won the Academy Award for Best Picture and the highest award at Cannes. Yeah, it's pretty pretty wild that there have only been three Best Picture winners that also won at Cannes, winning the Grand Prix. Although I think that has changed a little bit. I think Parasite won the Palme d'Or, which is now the biggest prize at yeah that kind of confused me when i yeah. first read that because i'm like that's not what they call it. that's a race <laughs> yeah but but just the whole uh, the the whole idea is that only three films have won those two awards and they wouldn't be the two that i guess that i would have assumed or the three that i would have assumed but that's pretty good company to be in to you know those are all three great movies you've now seen two of the three so you still got to go see marty but uh yeah I, I think you'll enjoy that one a lot too it's interesting because I usually think of Cannes as like the more prestigious kind of arts housey, where a lot of Palme d'Or they're not really popular films. Uh, kind of thinking about some of the winners of, of most recent years, and from my knowledge, maybe I'm completely off by that because I don't know a list of Cannes Palme d'Or winners right in front of my face. But I feel like they usually pick winners that are more out there, or something that kind of pushes the film genre and. I could see why this would be one of those kind of winners to kind of line up, and I could see with Parasite. So, yeah, I'm totally excited for in 10 episodes when we get to Marty. I'm pretty sure Pulp Fiction won a Palme d'Or. Yeah, and that's like... And then didn't Old Boy, the the Korean version Old Boy... I could I'm, totally see that. I'm, yeah, the Spike Lee version one. Yeah, not the Spike Lee. I'm pretty sure both of those won. So, um, again, like those aren't Best Picture winners, but those are two of the best films within the, the last 20, 30 years. So to put into perspective of some stats and numbers in the last weekend, the Rotten Tomatoes percentage is a 98. The average Rotten Tomatoes rating is an 8.44 out of 10. The Rotten Tomatoes top critics percentage is 100% fresh with an average rating of a 9 out of 10. The audience score is a 90 with a 4.14 out of 5. The IMDb rating is a 7.9 and it won four total Oscars out of seven. John, what did you give The Lost Weekend? You can obviously tell from listening to this that I absolutely love this movie. I love its characters, its story, and its use of all the cinematic elements that create such a wonderful film. I gave The Lost Weekend a 94 out of 100, becoming my highest reviewed Best Picture winner yet. Yes, that is definitely his highest reviewed and higher than mine. I gave it a 92. So a little bit lower, still a movie, a minus in my scoring. It's a phenomenal film. I I implore everyone to go see it. I, I feel like we said a lot about it and honestly not enough about it. Like that's how 
deep this film goes. That's how rich it is, how great it is, and it, it's phenomenal. It's it's a great movie. I I would beg people to watch it. It's certainly fantastic. So, John, your average rating with that ninety four brought your average rating to a sixty nine point five. Woo! And then my average rating is a seventy five point one or point two to round that up. So, out of eighteen movies. We have a six-point difference in our film scores, um, and so it's still a little low. There's some movies to contribute to that. Uh, just to put again to another perspective, the average Rotten Tomato percentage rating on these 18 films is an 84, so we're below that average. But again, there are some movies we really didn't like that Rotten Tomatoes has a higher percentage for. So to answer the age-old question, John, is The Lost Weekend worthy of the Best Picture Award of 19? 45. What, you think I'm going to say no? No, I, I didn't think you were going to say no. I just no. gave it the highest route. Of course it's worthy. Of <laughs> it's course so it's worthy. worthy. It is incredibly worthy. Um, I I don't think there's, unless we want to talk for another two hours, is there any last minute things you want to say about The Lost Weekend? I just want to say life's like a circle, man. A vicious circle oh that goes God. round and round and round. Delirium is a disease of the night. <laughs> So that's it for this episode. Uh, Talking about the Lost Weekend, the Best Picture winner of 1945. I'm Ben. And I'm John. And And this this is Worthy. Worthy. Matt, weave me another. Better take it easy. Oh, don't worry about me. Just let me know when it's a quarter of six. Okay. Come on, Matt. Join me. One little jigger of dreams, huh? No, thanks. You don't approve of drinking? Not the way you drink. It shrinks my liver, doesn't it, Matt? It pickles my kidneys, yes. But what does it do to my mind? It tosses the sandbags overboard so the balloon can soar. Suddenly, I'm above the ordinary. I'm competent, supremely competent. I'm walking a tightrope over Niagara Falls. I'm one of the great ones. I'm Michelangelo molding the beard of Moses. I'm Van Gogh painting pure sunlight. I'm Horowitz playing the Emperor Concerto. I'm John Barrymore before the movies got him by the throat. Thanks for listening to Worthy, the breakdown of every Best Picture winner from past to present. You can listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out on Instagram at Worthy Podcast, on Twitter at Worthy Pod, and on Facebook at Worthy Podcast. Any inquiries can be submitted to worthysubmissions at gmail.com. Again, that's worthysubmissions at gmail.com.